John chapter number one this evening. I've been very excited to start this sermon series, been very excited to study it out and preach on it. As you saw maybe this morning, if you're in service, we're going to start a new series entitled Running Your Race with a Pace of Grace. And really that's a mouthful, but what it comes down to is trying to live our daily life while avoiding spiritual burnout and experiencing daily renewal. Man, I'm amazed at how many people are just almost treading water in their day-to-day life. Struggling, trying to find an answer, a, a reason to keep on keeping on. And to be honest with you, a lot of people I feel may be burning the candle at both ends. And yet there's a Bible principle that if we will go to God, He will restore us. Every day, He will help us every day. And so really that's the idea behind the entire series that we'll start into. Now, I'll be honest with you, it'll be a few weeks before we get to the daily walk portion of the sermon series. It'll be a few weeks before we get to where it, uh, I guess, practically applies to your life where you're at now. But for us to understand how we get there, we've got to start at the most basic. You see, kindergartners don't graduate 12th grade the first time they go to school. And by no means demeaning your understanding or your knowledge of the Bible, but I am saying as far as this matter of providing grace to sustain a Christian's life, we just really don't know that much about it. And uh, it's in the Bible, and so we're going to learn about it. We're going to study it together. I've already learned just a ton. I told the Lord tonight that uh, if, if this is for nobody else, I'm just thankful He's allowed me the privilege to study it out. The Bible says in John chapter number 1, verse number 6, which I'll, ha- I'll tell you a little secret. John chapter 1 is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. John is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's absolutely my favorite gospel. And John chapter 1, verse 6 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He, John that is, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. That's a sad verse, really. Because when it says in verse number 10, the first world there, he was in the world, and the world, that second world, if you will, that's speaking of the cosmos world, everything that is was made by him. But when it gets down to uh, the, the third world there, that's specifically peop, uh, speaking of the people in the world. You see, the world had no doubt who the Savior was. See, did not the winds and seas obey him? Jesus told a group of people as he came in for the triumphant entry, he said, even if these people were to be silent, even these rocks would cry out. See, creation has never denied the existence of its creator, but we created beings seemingly got a, a brain several years ago and we decided to question. Even though everything else we know exists because of a creator, we think we're the exception. The world, at least most of what was in it, knew him, but the creation, we people, rejected him. Verse number 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power, the dunamis, the dynamite power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. Does it take baptism? Well, not according to John chapter 1 verse 12. What do you got to do to have the power to be called the sons of God? Uh, Believe on his name. John chapter 1 is just so rich. I mean, we're not even to the part of the sermon, but we're just so rich in doctrine. I just love John chapter 1. Verse number 13. If you can't have fun studying the Bible, if you really think that they're having more fun tonight watching that stinking ball game than I am reading this about my eternal redemption, you're wrong. 
Because Tom Brady ain't the goat. Jesus is. He's actually the Lamb of God, but goat meaning greatest of all time, just in case there were people unaware of that. Anyway, moving on. Verse number 13, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This was He of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness have all we received. I want you to say the next four words with me. Ready, go, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. What even got me thinking about this concept of grace in the Christian life was several weeks ago, preacher preached a message, I believe it was on Wednesday night, about continuing in this same grace, speaking of those in Corinth who Paul was trying to encourage them And he referred to the church at Macedonia and said that that church had just beyond their ability given to the cause of Christ. Even in their deep poverty, Paul says, they've they've given to the cause of Jesus. And then he says, we've encouraged Titus to continue and encourage in you, the church at Corinth, this same grace also. Preacher taught that night on the grace of giving. And there's a grace of giving. But you know, there's all sorts of different graces that are given by God to sustain the Christian and to equip the Christian in service for Him. Just a few of these, one would be found in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where God told the Apostle Paul after he came to him and he said, Lord, I, I have this thorn in the flesh and I believe I might be able to be a better minister if you remove it. And what did God tell Paul? Paul said, I besought the Lord three times about this matter. And yet God said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. So we find God's grace is sufficient even despite our limitations. Our handicaps, our insufficiencies, God's grace is sufficient where we are insufficient. And I'll tell you, when I face my day, I make many decisions throughout the course of the day, and more than half of them, I would say, I feel ill-equipped or ill-prepared to make the decision when it comes down the pike. And even though I feel that way, you know what God says to me? My grace is sufficient for you. Another time is in Hebrews chapter 4, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, verse number 16. The Bible says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may be able to attain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. God gives grace to those who need grace. And just at the moment when you feel like you are about to drown in the peril of your problem, God says, how about you just come talk to me a little bit. I'll shower you in my grace. James chapter 4 verse 6, the Bible says, But he, that is God, giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. The moment when I am willing as a Christian to finally just throw my hands up and say, God, it's out of my control. I'm I'm totally relying on you. God says, hey, I've got just the thing for you, a big old pile of grace. We Christians need grace. But let me ask you, when was the last time you prayed for grace? We ask for God's help all the time, do we not? We say, Lord, please solve this problem. Help me in the time of need. We've even prayed prayers that say, Lord, help me to see your hand at work. Or Lord, help me to understand what you're trying to do. But we rarely, if ever, say, Lord, I just need a big old heaping of grace to help me face this problem. And yet God says that he will give it. 
John chapter 1 is an amazing chapter in the Word of God, but here in our passage specifically, the theme of the passage and the, the main core subject that is being addressed is grace. But it is grace that exposes to us the glory of Christ. See, John was able to be on the Mount of Transfiguration. John was able to see the Lord Jesus in probably his greatest moment of earthly ministry when he and the Father communed so closely that everything that had been veiled for 30 some odd years had at one moment in time just opened itself up and exposed it. And nobody else in the world while Christ was on this earth was able to see what those few disciples was able to see on the Mount of Transfiguration. And John happened to be one of them. And he says here, I saw the glory of God like few have ever seen. And he says, if you want to see the glory of God, here's the way you'll find it. By viewing His grace. You say, Brother Andrew, I don't think that's true. Well, that's why I'm excited to get to the message because I'm about to show you it's true. This passage, even though truth is mentioned... It is simply the accent mark. You understand? Because here, this is the only time in John's gospel or in 1 John where grace is mentioned. And it's mentioned that Christ was full of grace and truth. And he also says grace for grace. And then he goes on again to reiterate Christ was full of grace and truth. And we find it in Christ. 55 times the word true, truth, or uh, truly is mentioned in just John's gospel. So John says to start out the relationship with Christ and to understand his glory, we must access it by observing his grace. We must understand that the grace of God is what will share with us the glory of God. You see, it's hard to picture our God. It's hard to imagine how amazing he might be. In fact, if you ever sit down to try thinking how good God is, I don't know about you, but I find my mind almost going in circles like a hamster on a wheel. I try to imagine it, and I'll even pray a prayer. God, please share with me, expose to me your greatness and your goodness. I want to sense your majesty. And yet I find as my mind begins to dwell on this thought, it never goes anywhere because my mind can't comprehend the uncomprehendable. God is so good, and yet we find here, John says, if you're going to understand the glory of your God, it will be when you understand His grace. It's the key to understanding His glory. And so tonight, quickly, I'll do my very best. I might be lying to you when I say that because there's a whole lot of sermon and not a whole lot of time to preach it. But I'm going to share with you three impactful realities about the face of grace. The sermon title is The Face of Grace. In John chapter 1, I'll share with you the first impactful reality. It is this, the presentation of grace. Verse number 14 is an amazing verse, but the Bible says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ was presented to the world as the face of grace. But He had a predecessor, and I want to share with you number one tonight, sub-point under that, that there was a man sent. Verse number 6, we know who that man is. The Bible says in verse number 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now John is a unique character study in the Bible. He's one of the craziest birds in all of it. Matthew chapter 3 shares a little bit with us about him and also here in the latter part of John chapter 1. John is probably, other than his preaching and his passion for the Lord, most notable by the clothes that he wore and the food that he ate. John the Baptist was a man who was clothed in a hairy garment, a camel's hair, in fact. He was girded with a leather belt and, and even ate locust and honey. 
And what you must understand is John did not do this just because this was comfortable. Can you imagine clothing yourself in camel hair? That sounds awful, does it not? Why did John act like this? Why did he dress like this? You see, John is the clothes of an era, if you will. He is, the, he is the prophet out of his season. Now, I'm not saying God got it wrong by when he sent John, but what I'm saying is John is the last Old Testament prophet that was ever sent. In fact, he almost typifies in every way, by every action that he has, all those that came before him, those like Elijah. You ever notice how similar Jonah and John's message were? Repent. Repent. In fact, that's almost every Old Testament prophet's message, was it not? Repent. John was a prophet almost out of his season, and yet God chose to send him. Zechariah chapter 13 tells us that even the, the clothes that he wore, the camel hair, was traditional Old Testament prophet garments. In fact, the Bible says, when he hath prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment. That word rough there is hairy. So Old Testament prophets were known to wear hairy garments. The leather belt that is mentioned here in John and in Matthew, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, tells us that Elijah wore a belt just like that. John typified all those that had come before him. In fact, the very diet that he had, stay with me, this is very interesting. But his diet consisted of locusts and honey. Can anybody say, yum? What an odd diet it is. Why would he do that? Let me tell you why. Because traditionally in the Old Testament, locusts were a sign of God's judgment on a nation. Honey is a sign of God's promise. For instance, remember when he sent the locusts into Egypt? What did God say about the promised land? It was a land flowing with milk and what? So you find here two aspects of his diet. One consists of the judgment of God. The other aspect of his diet consists of the promises of God. You see, John was the man that bridged the Old Testament to the New Testament. He was the Old Testament prophet that was passing it on to the New Testament Lamb of God. John is a man that was sent from God with a message of God. He was a very unique man. He was a man sent from God. But I want you to see also that there was a message that he spoke. This message we find, verse number 8, He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. You see, John's mission in this life was not to see people saved, although he did. His mission, given by God, hand-selected, was to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. And when he came, those folks were to hear his gospel. He had two core themes to his message. Number one, he was to tell people about a message to straighten their path. Verse number 23 of John chapter 1, we find, the Bible says, He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Esaias. You see, John's first core message was this, straighten the paths for the Messiah is coming. His second point of his message was this, I am second place. Straighten your paths and I'm in second place. You see, he did this in two ways. He said, well, first of all, I'm second place in age. Look in verse number 27. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me. Even at the conclusion of verse 15, the Bible says, He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. You see, John said, not only is he before me in all sorts of ways, but primarily he is before me in age. Now, if you know anything about the uh, chronology of the Bible, you'll understand that John was actually in the womb at the announcement of the Lord Jesus. In fact, he was the baby who leaped when he heard the news in Elizabeth's womb. John, we know for a fact in the Bible, is older than the Lord as far as his earthly ministry. Some guess approximately eight months older. I don't know. I just know he's older. But I'll say this. John looked at all those crowds and he said, look... 
I am not older than him. Not only is he preferred before me, but he was before me. Now, what in the world could he be talking about? His message was this. The man that is coming after me is not bound by time. The man that is coming after me is not like a normal man. You see, I was born and I will die, but this man has been from everlasting. This man has been and always will be. This man liveth forevermore and has always lived. He reigns forever and ever. And that was the message of John the Baptist. He says, not only in age, but in attention. John the Baptist said... He is preferred before me. I'm not even worthy to loosen the latchet on his shoe. Wouldn't it be nice if some of our preachers kind of took that note out of John's book? Maybe some of our preachers would stop thinking themselves so high and mighty. If John the Baptist, hand-selected by God to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ, felt unworthy to serve the Lord, boy, some of our preachers sure get a little haughty when they start preaching, don't they? John the Baptist was a humble man and he understood that it was not for him to receive the acknowledgement of men or the praise of men or the attention of men. His message was simply to share about the coming Savior. There was a man sent from God. There was a message spoken by John. Number three, it's bad when the preacher gets messed up on his countdown. Number three, there was a Messiah shared. Verse 14, the Bible says, And the Word was made flesh, And dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father. Now lest we at Joshua Baptist would ever get this confused, verse 14 is not talking about the written Word of God. And I would ask you to pay attention here, Christian, because I have, in my life, been... been, Confused at how many people will quote John chapter 1, verse 1, and John chapter 1, verse 14 in reference to the Bible that they hold in their hands. But let us all understand, it is not speaking of the Word of God that you have in your lap. Now, the Word of God is a wonderful book. And the Word of God is, is, is a quick and powerful and is a divider, even to the joints and marrow, and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I believe all that. But John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh. This book never did that. The Bible says in John chapter 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... What's the next word? This book is not God. Now this book is of God, but it is not God. John chapter 1 verse 1 and John chapter 1 verse 14 is speaking specifically of the living Savior. It is speaking about the God-man. And let us be careful, Christian, not to think that Jesus, and I don't want this to sound as bad as it's going to, is some cheap knockoff of God. Sometimes I get the sense that we think that Jesus is secondary to God. But the only illustration that I can help you understand tonight, it is as if when when Jesus came to this earth, it is as if God the Father took His crown off, set it in His throne, and left the glories of heaven to come and die for you. God walked among us and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now there's a lot of great men in this world and men that are brilliant. Man, yesterday we attended Brother Carvajal's funeral and uh, his uh, obituary was longer than any paper I've ever written in my life. That man was as educated as probably any man I've ever known, brilliant scholar, uh, wrote in, uh, was it medical journals or or psychology journals, uh, psychiatric journals, people would refer to his work over the years, Uh, a baseball coach, man, this guy did everything. And I'm so happy that we we were able to have a little time with Brother Carvajal. And there's been a lot of great men on this earth, but can you imagine... How amazing it is that God came as if He were our equal. Placed Himself in flesh. 
Jesus is not only a piece of God. Jesus was a hundred percent God. Lest we get confused when Isaiah prophesied of a coming Lord and the Bible says in chapter 7 verse 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The book of Matthew tells us Emmanuel means God with us. The Bible also says here in John chapter 1 that the Word was God. He came down to this earth. It was a Messiah that was shared for the sins of mankind. And then fourthly, I want you to see, as sad as this is, there was a missed Savior. Can you imagine walking side by side with Jesus and ignoring His message and life-changing power? Chapter number 1, verse 10 tells us he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. And he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now, I almost have to wonder, how could anybody miss him? All the miracles that we read about, and all the things that he did while on this earth, and people were so foolish and so ignorant that they couldn't even recognize that Jesus was Lord and Savior right in front of them? Could you imagine being at the tomb of Lazarus that day when Jesus, the doctor, had already medically declared Lazarus deader than dead, and then Jesus says, hey, Lazarus, why don't you just come forth, buddy? And Lazarus just walk right out of the grave. Could you imagine being there that day? I would buy whatever Jesus was selling. He just raised a man back from the dead. And yet there were people who denied every word he said. How does that happen? Well, it happens the same way people deny everything that we tell them. It happens the same way that most people in this world, or at least in America anyway, specifically in our area, have just chosen to reject what they know about the Bible. Why is this? Well, two reasons. Number one... Their eyes are blinded. The Bible says our adversary has, in fact, the Bible even calls him the God of this world, hath blinded their eyes, blinded their minds so that they would not be able to see the truth that is staring them right back in the face. The other day I heard that Bill Nye, the science guy, was asked how we got to this earth. You see, he doesn't believe in God. And somebody asked him, how we got to this earth. And he began to say, well, I, I, I would probably say that uh, uh, we were created. And, and, and it kind of caught the questionnaire off, off track because he said, you believe that we were created? You believe that intelligent design? You believe in that? And he said, yes, but so you believe in God? And he said, no, I would say we're more likely aliens. <laughs> what an easy lie to buy. And yet, as ridiculous as it sounds to us, the devil has got him hook, line, and sinker. He is just as convinced in what he believes as you are in what you believe. And the devil's blinded his mind and his heart. There's no way he can understand the truth about a Savior who loved him enough to die for him because the devil's got him right where he wants him. Their blindness was one problem. And then secondly, the world's darkness. You see, the Bible calls Jesus light. In fact, it says, in him was no darkness at all. There's no variableness nor shadow of turning with God. And and Jesus came into this world. He was the light of the world. And John chapter 3 tells us, and men love darkness rather than they love light. The other night, I walked out of my house with my daughter Caitlin and Bailey and we have our porch light which isn't very bright probably because I haven't changed the light bulb in a really long time but uh, uh, you know we have that light and then we have another one for when we pull up into the driveway it's motion activated it kicks on so we can see when we're getting out of the vehicles but it takes a little bit to get in front of the motion sensor so when you step out of my house immediately it's very dark And I remember my daughter standing at the the exit of our home there. And she said, Daddy, I'm scared of the dark. And I said, Caitlin, me too. I mean, think about it. 
Even a child knows dark, nothing good happens at dark. Even a child knows there's scary things in dark. And yet the Bible tells us that when Christ came to this earth, he offered a way, he had a message, he offered them life-changing truth, and yet men rejected him. Why? Because they loved to dwell in the dark places of this world rather than accept his light. The world's darkness. You see, when Christ came, there was a presentation of grace. He changed everything. But I want you to see now, secondly, the preference of grace. I promise you, you're a lot rather live in the time that we live in than the time that Noah lived in. They were both wicked. They were both people who loved their, their deeds. They, 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 they all were wicked beyond belief. But I'll tell you this. At least we have this book in our lap. Man, it's amazing to me that men like Noah and Moses, Enoch, Abraham, men like that, they were able to walk so close with, closely with God and yet they never had their instruction manual. We have it, the living Word of God right in front of us. It's alive, man. It, does, it works in the hearts of Christians. We have this book. You'd lot rather live in the time that you lived than the time that they lived. The space between your Old Testament and New Testament varies in Bibles. Sometimes it's one entire blank page. Sometimes it's just a small little section of white space. But I want to tell you, Christian, more happened in that white space than probably any other part of the Bible. God was about to do something that would change the course of history. Just in that little white space. You see, the difference between the Old and the New Testament was, as the book of Hebrews tells us, the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of those things. All of those men before the book of Malachi, all of those men had only just a, a dim figure, a, a shadow of the good thing that was to come. But in that white space, Christ came to this earth. And he, he was not just a shadow of the good thing, he was the thing. He was the thing that would change the course of history. That white space represents the changeover from that which was to that which was to come. It represents the promised Messiah becoming the suffering Savior. It speaks of the hope of every man changing over to the payment for every man. It changed from the working way to the winning way. It displays the plan of God and results in the remedy of God. All the men before that white space lived in fear. Now we can live in faith. Sacrifice is often before that white space. Now a sacrifice once and for all for the sins of the world. All those men drowning in sin. Now we find ourselves delivered by him. Before that white space was the law. Now Christian we have liberty. Before that white space... Guilt was upon every man. Now we get to live and abide in the grace of our God. That is preferable. The fact that we get to live this side of the B.C., this side of the cross that marks the change over in history. We get to look back on a Savior who loved us and showed us His love on the cross of Calvary. Man, that is preferential treatment. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 tells us, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law lived as a schoolmaster, as a condemner of those who were under it, and yet Christ is the liberator for those that would trust in His name. The law could not save us. Romans chapter 8 verse 3, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Christ came and He changed all that the law was doing, and He became the fulfillment of the law. 
Romans chapter 5 verse 20 tells us, Moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The law told you that you were a sinner. You know what Christ told you? That you were loved. The law told you that you couldn't do it. Christ told you, I already did it. The law said that you would never be good enough. Jesus said, but I was. That is preferential. The preferred grace that the Savior gave to you and me is so wonderful. Christian, how can you wake up tomorrow with a frown on your face knowing that you live on this side of grace? Christ has been so good to us. I want you to do me a favor, and I don't, I don't do this lightly, and I don't want to seem too mystic, or I don't want to seem theatrical. But I want you to do me a favor, if you will, please just close your eyes. And I want you to imagine that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Christ, fully well knowing he is about to be taken to die on the cross, There he sweats great drops of blood because of the pressure that he was facing. He can hear the rattle of the the soldiers that are coming to take him away, knowing he will have to submit and lay his head down on that cross. I want you to imagine Christ as he's pushed down a road by some soldiers God of the universe in a shoving match losing to a Roman soldier. I want you to imagine him. He's there in Pilate's court as he's beaten and he's questioned and he's mocked and he's spat upon and he's whipped. I want you to imagine this with your your mind's eye. Now I want you to follow him down that lonely road up to Golgotha where there he will be hung By two deserving thieves, he is innocent, free of any blame, guiltless, and yet hanging there nonetheless. I want you to hear the cross as it's lowered into its place there. And I want you to hear the shouting from the crowd as they shout, Crucify him! If you're God, you save yourself! I want you to look into that face of a Savior with a brow that's been pierced with a thorn of, of, a, a crown of thorns. I want you to look into that face that Psalm says his visage was so marred that he was unrecognizable. I want you to look into that face of pain and I want you to look in that face of agony and you tell me you don't see grace. And you tell me you don't see the undeserved favor of your God. I want you to see your Savior there. And I want you to experience just for however brief the moment, the glory of God as he suffers and dies for your sins. Now, friend, you can look this way. I don't know if that did anything for you. But as I did, it it sure did a whole lot for me. You see, the, the sermon title is this, The Face of Grace. You can't get to the throne of grace where we can come and we can ask God for grace until you look upon his face at Calvary. No grace that he could give you to face tomorrow will ever supersede the grace that he has already given you when he died on that tree. Look into the face of grace and you tell me, Christian... Would you prefer the way, where you live and how you live and the grace that you've experienced? Or would you rather take a goat down to a temple only to delay your sins for one season? The way we have it, the grace that we have been able to have and, and partake in, that is preferred. John even said, He that cometh after me is preferred before me. John represented the law and Christ represented the grace that was extended by the Lord. I want you to see, number one, the presentation of grace. Number two, the preference of grace. And then finally, number three, I want you to see the prominence of grace. Verse number 16, the Bible says, 
And of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. That means grace stacked upon grace. The other day, or this afternoon actually, we were at lunch and and my daughter Caitlin is a very uh, active minded and if she doesn't have something to do, she'll find something to do. Bailey, if she doesn't have something to do, she'll find something to break, okay? And Caitlin was there at the table and they had this uh, uh, little, I don't know, uh, it had jellies and jams in it. I don't know what you'd call them, a little tray type deal there, a carrier. And it's just to organize the raspberry from the strawberry, from the blueberry, from the whatever berry. And, And so Caitlin decides to take them all out. And stack one upon another. And and I didn't even realize she was doing it until she said, Dad, look. And I look over there and Caitlin probably has 18 to 20 of these things stacked up probably two feet off of the table. You know what? That's what this verse says. Grace for grace. Grace stacked upon grace. But I want you to see in verse number 17, there's a mention of a man here. And we would be foolish to overlook this. The Bible says, For the law was given by Moses, but, by, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now it's pretty strange that Moses would be mentioned in this context. You see, so far we've been introduced to John and we've been introduced to Christ. And we find both of those men... In the same era, in the same time period, John representing the law and Christ representing grace. And we find that being pretty harmonious. John being the forerunner and Christ being the one that was to come. And and this seems to make sense, but out of nowhere in verse 17, it mentions this man Moses, who certainly was instrumental in delivering the law of God to the nation of Israel, But I think there's a greater purpose here. I want you to take your Bible to Exodus chapter number 33, if you will. A lot has gone on in the two preceding chapters here. Exodus 31, Moses goes into Mount Sinai, leaves the people there at the base of the mountain. And he goes up to meet with God and God begins to give him law. And in fact, he gives him two tablets there of the law. And we know that it has the commandments from God. That's chapter 31. And if you've studied your Bible at all, you know something happens in chapter 32. Probably the saddest day in the nation of Israel's history, I would suspect, or at least one of them. Moses comes down from the mountain with the law of God... God's first recorded word, here it is, the law of God. Chapter number 32, the people say, we don't know what's happened to this man Moses, so uh, Aaron, why don't you get up and, and make us gods that can go before us into this land? Chapter 32, Moses comes down out of the mountain carrying these two tablets only to see his nation, his kinfolk, his brethren, naked, partying at the foot of a golden calf that they now have assumed as their God. It's a very sad story. In fact, you find Moses' reaction a little disturbing at first, because if you know your Bible, what does Moses do? He takes the law of God and he breaks it. Why would he do that? Well, because if they had been given the law right there, every single one of them were completely 100% guilty of it. In fact, we know in chapter 32, Moses goes and takes care of the issue. He grinds up all the gold that God had given them that they used to build the golden calf, and now he makes them drink it. It's a, a very sad story. But I want you to see in chapter number 33... Moses and God, even if the nation of Israel at this point are not in a good standing with God, Moses and God are in a fantastic standing with one another. Chapter 31, he just spent time with God alone in the mountain receiving the law of God. 
chapter number 33, he begins and he builds the tabernacle, the tent of meeting where every day Moses would go out and meet with God apart from the nation of Israel. And God met with him, the Bible tells us, as face to face. Moses is so close to God that the Bible's own terminology says it was as if God stood there and spoke with him. Joshua obviously desires the type of relationship that Moses has with God because Joshua stays after Moses has left trying to grab onto the hem of God's garment, if you will allow me to use that analogy. Moses continues and we find that verse number 12 will begin reading in chapter number 32. The Bible says, And Moses said unto the Lord, See thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people. And thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name. And thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight. And consider that this nation is thy people. Now not to interrupt the Bible here. But did I not just tell y'all that Moses had met with God as face to face? Did I just not refer to chapter 31 where he just spent days in the mountains with God alone receiving the law of God as God's very fingertips were carving the stone out? This is Moses' relationship. And now in verse 13 we find Moses saying, God, I want to know you. Verse 14, and he said, my presence shall go with thee and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth? The Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. Now verse 13, verse 17, we find a whole lot of talk about grace. And then in verse 18, Moses says this, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. As close as he was to God, his request is this. God, show me your glory. I've sensed a lot of your grace, but Lord, I need to see your glory. We continue reading. And he said, that is, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on him on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass when my glory passeth by that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock and I will cover thee with my hand while I pass by and I will take away mine hand and thou shalt see my back parts but my face shall not be seen. Now Moses wants to see God's glory. And Moses as one of the only Old Testament saints gets to see a a factual, undeniable Christophany here. An Old Testament appearance of Christ here. Now Moses gets to see God walk by in the cliff of the rock. Moses' prayer request was this, God, I... We're so close and we speak every day and I know you as face to face. You're my best friend. I rely on you. I have no one else but you. Lord, you've called me to this great mission and Lord, I'm trying to serve you. Lord, I'm trying to do what you want me to do. God, I love you with all my heart, but Lord, it's just not enough. Lord, what I need right now is I just need to see your glory. And yet God says, okay, Moses, I'll show you my glory, but there's a limit. Here it is. Moses, you can't see my face. 
Now fast forward to John chapter 1. But in part of the chapter, we find John the Baptist baptizing converts exactly as he was instructed to do. Speaking about this great man that is to come, speaking of him who is before him, is preferred before him, and is aged before him, and and everyone should acknowledge him before him. And and this man that John would not even be worthy to latch latch it on his shoe. And, And John one day while baptizing there looks up and for the first time in the history of man, he sees the face of grace. What Moses was unable to see, John now looked at. What Moses begged God to see, John now looked right in his face. And in probably the greatest pronouncement and sermon in all the Bible, John the Baptist, being spirit-led and spirit-filled, no doubt, with everything in him, with all the emotion of his ministry and and all the, the, the fulfillment of everything that is coming, he looks up with everything that he can and he says those famous words that will echo throughout history. My friends, I want you to take note. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. You know what he was saying? Behold the face of grace that Moses longed to see. Behold the one that all those looked forward to. Behold the the one that all those spotless lambs represented. Behold the one who allowed the nation of Israel to be passed over. Behold the lamb, the face of grace. I have no doubt, friend, you need help tomorrow. You need help to get through your day. You need help to get to tomorrow. You need God's grace active and present in your life. And God says this, it is 100% available to you. But lest you overvalue the grace that is to come and undervalue the grace that has already been given... The greatest grace you will ever see, Christian, is that which has been displayed on the cross of Calvary. And tomorrow, if you pray this prayer, God, I want your grace, you know what God's going to say? Let me show you his face. The Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. That's the face of grace.